Thank you, brother. Thank you for that good singing, too. And uh, if anyone in this world has someone to sing about, it's us, isn't it? Let's come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, I took time this morning in Acts chapter 17 to try to set up the uh, purpose of our study and, and the uh, reason why I labeled it like we did. And that will, that will become clear when we get into chapter 2, which we will be probably covering in these weeknight studies. So maybe uh, you should try to record those because there may be a lot of people that will miss those. And chapter 2 is the big controversial chapter for, for many people. And I'm sorry I won't get to that on Sunday morning, but it just makes sense to consecutively continue working through it that way. But chapter 1, we read the chapter this morning. Let's read the, uh, the first four verses again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you, the, I should say the love of every one of you all, abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. We'll stop there. We, th this particular beginning, I would suggest we see regeneration evidenced here. The new birth. Regeneration means the new birth. We see it evidenced here. And we see it evidenced in three areas that, that he brings out in the first letter, dealing with faith, hope, and love, something we're, most of us are familiar with from 1 Corinthians 13. And he develops, that becomes, I think, really an outline of the first letter. 1 Thessalonians moves around those, those three particular characteristics of a born-again person and therefore characteristics of a born-again testimony, a genuine testimony of God. I mean, isn't it wonderful? The Lord demonstrates to us, explains to us what a real work of God looks like. So we can look at our own testimony, we can look at our own assembly, compare it to that and see how we're doing. We can measure. God wants us to do that. He wants us to do that individually with ourselves on a regular basis, doesn't he? As we assess our growth in him, we're a work in progress. He began a good work in us, but he hasn't completed it yet. He'll complete it on the day of Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 1.6. So he began a good work. When? At our new birth, regeneration. And it's marvelous to participate with him in that. Well, he has a standard introduction here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the three workers that, that were working there as they went into Thessalonica and in that bringing the gospel into Europe. There in beginning in Acts 16, to the church of the Thessalonians specifically, and that church is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important to follow the scriptures as they're given. You know, I, I heard a, a message years ago on Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you know, the great throne room scene, and, and the individual, the brother, was trying to exalt Christ, but he was trying to say Christ is the, the man sitting on the throne, and Christ is also the, the lamb taking the scroll. Well, that's not logical. God the Father is sitting on the throne, and the lamb's taking the scroll from him. That's what's logical. And here, God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus, are distinguished. They're distinguished again in Revelation 22, aren't they? In the new heavens, the new earth. So let's not you know, to take away from the, the whole idea of the Trinity that we see in the Bible. This is taught in the Bible, isn't it? And here he says, we need to remember, it came out this morning in some of our worship, that the church, this assembly too is a church, the assembly in Pembroke Pines, in God our Father. That gives great strength to who we are and our identity, doesn't it? That's who I am. That's who you are. And the Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest currently, seated at the Father's right hand, and he's coming to reign on this earth. And the Bible says, we will reign 
with him. That manifests, the whole idea manifests privilege in that, doesn't it? The whole idea is because it isn't anything that we deserve. It isn't anything we could ever merit, this privileged position. We couldn't buy it. We couldn't do enough good works to get it. It's a gift. That's what grace means. And that's so important to understand because when you begin to see the gift of grace and how we've received it, then we, number one, we don't have to compete with each other because we all received the same grace and grace upon grace. And number two, we'll more want to share it with others. You know, the whole idea of legalistic, pharisaic, performance-oriented religion. I grew up in a religion like that. That kind of religion makes you compete with everybody else. If you're thinking like that, you may not be a Christian, by the way, because that's not Christian thinking. If you're competing with your brethren and comparing yourselves with your brethren and trying to tear them down to elevate yourself, that's not Christian thinking. That's worldly thinking. See, that's what, that's what the religious world does. And so they don't want to share the gospel with anybody because, because they, they want to keep it just for themselves. But when you understand that, that it is a gracious gift, the gift of salvation, then you begin to have compassion even for people that have hurt you, even for people that you may be angry with right now. You begin to have compassion for them. And realize, but for the grace of God, there go I, you know. So Paul has this introduction. And, of course, expressing grace in verse 2 and peace. And that order is important, too. You can't have peace without grace. And grace will always yield to peace. If you understand grace, that's unmerited favor, right? So you've been favored by God and not because of any merit on your own. Doesn't that give you peace? If that doesn't give you peace... Brethren, I don't know what will. <laughs> there isn't anything else that will. When you recognize you're a doomed sinner before a holy God, there isn't anything else that's going to give you peace, but when you recognize he's received you graciously through his Son. And so again, God the Father and God the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, expressed there. And then in verses Three and four, we see, and, I, and it's so concise here. Like I say, he spends five chapters in the first letter expanding these two verses, really. So he knows he's written to them. In this particular letter, Second Thessalonians, is written just a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months at the most, after the first letter. And in the first letter, you might remember, we didn't look at that, but you might remember from previous times of reading it, that he, ex he had exhibited such a pastoral concern and heart. Pastoral means shepherding, you understand me. A shepherd's heart for them. And he was concerned, why? Because they were suffering persecutions. He had been persecuted, such that they ushered him out of town before he got hurt, after they knew what he had suffered in Philippi. They didn't want that to be repeated. But now they're left behind suffering, and he's concerned more about them than he is about himself. So much so that he finally says, he says, Timothy, he, well, let's read it. He says there in chapter 3 of, of 1 Thessalonians, when we could no longer endure it, <laughs> we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens, and he noticed this, alone. Paul didn't like to be alone, but it's self-sacrificial love for them he sends Timothy, when he'd rather have Timothy with him. They were co-partners in ministry. And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow, fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Because I'm concerned about you, he says. I'm concerned you might lose heart. So I'm going to send my most important worker, to establish you and encourage your faith. Well, that's pastoral love, isn't it? That's sacrificing 
what we would like to have for ourselves for the help of others. So Paul continues here in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we are bound to thank God always for you. Just the fact that you're saved, the fact that you've been brought into the family of God, the church of the living God, the body of Christ. He says that word bound is the idea of obligation. He says, I am obligated to thank God for you. Now think about that in terms of our own testimony. And by the way, I think the whole issue here in chapter 1 is our testimony, our collective testimony as believers is a one of the big rebukes to the world system that is going to bring the world under judgment. Among other things, our testimony and love for one another Evidenced in our regeneration and ongoing growth in Christ is a rebuke to the world. See? So he says, we're bound to give thanks to God. He gives thanks to God because God's the source of this regeneration. He's the one that has provided for it. He's the one that has provided the illumination that we might understand it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Beloved, how often do you pray for one another? You realize that's not an option. We are bound to give thanks for one another. I am bound to give thanks for you to God. You are for me. We are mutually. See? We recognize that God's doing a great work in this world, and that work is in people like you and me. And right away, when we begin to, Lord, I just thank you that brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so are in our meeting and part of the testimony, what is that immediately that softens your heart towards them? And if you had any hardness of heart towards them, it begins to dissipate, doesn't it? See, the body of Christ is an organism. It's not an organization. That's why I, you know, the, these parachurch ministries drive that organizational idea way too hard, I think. We're an organism. It's the local body. We're responsible for one another. I am my brother's keeper. We're not just loosely attached and affiliated like, like you would be in a country club or at a bar, right? I mean, I have friends that I went to high school with. I mean, they, some of them are still drunkards, and they go to the bar because at the bar they're received unconditionally, they say. And if I go in your church meeting, I'm going to be judged, they say. Well, if that's true, if they are more received in the bar than they are in the body of Christ, there's something wrong, isn't there? I think we need to examine our hearts on this issue, especially in some of the legalistic ideas that have penetrated in so many of our churches here in America. We think we need to guard God's holiness, guard God's own holiness. We need to guard our own personal holiness. We're each responsible before God for that. But we don't need to be God's policemen for other people's lives, do we? Apart from the ministry of Elders and those that have to do discipline and that in a local church. We are to receive and encourage and never give up on people. It's one of the great ministries of Pacific Garden Mission, isn't it? I got to be there, as I told you, I think before last November and see a live production of Unshackled. I've been wanting to do that for 30 years. And one of the great things that has drawn me to that ministry, you know, one of their great mottos is, never give up on anyone. And I think we do too easily, me included. So he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. We're in, we're in a community here, a fellowship, koinonia, as it is fitting it's appropriate. It's in keeping with. 
what is happening in your lives and who you are. See, it's fitting. It's appropriate. Why? Because your faith grows exceedingly. See? Now, he explains the whole first chapter, I believe, in 1 Thessalonians, explains the work of faith. You remember in chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, and that forms the outline for that letter. And the work of faith, he explains, by the way, it is a work. But it's not the same word as labor associated with love. It is an energy, energy, a response to a message. That's what that word work of faith means. It means that faith involves action. That's how it's evidenced, right? That's how we know someone's born again. We don't just take their, just what they say. We look at what they do, how they live. Because it's a work of faith. And he, gives, he explains some 14 characteristics right there in chapter 1 of what that work of faith looks like so we can understand and see it. And then part of that work of faith is that it's not static. It's growing. And here he says, he uses a strong word, grows exceedingly. Now, he'll say in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, the word of God sounded in verse 8. We sounded forth not only Macedonia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. We don't even need to say anything anymore. You're the testimony. He says, you're the tract. You want to see a tract? We just, we just point them to you. Your changed life is the tract. That is to draw people to Christ, he's saying. So... Faith begins at new birth, but it continuously grows. It's not static. There's no neutral position. <laughs> if you're not growing, you're going backwards. If you're not progressing, some have said you're regressing. You're going back into your old life if you're not continuously growing which will put you into bondage and sin and out of fellowship with God and his people. There are consequences to that. And so we know what that growth looks like. We know how to achieve it. We know what is needed. And so we know how to assess our own lives and how we're doing. Am I reading the Bible consistently, hopefully daily? Am I in prayer Consistently, hopefully daily. Am I enjoying fellowship with the Lord's people consistently? Am I involved in remembering the Lord consistently? All these, these are basic things, right? We, we all know these things. But the danger, what Paul's going to bring out is that when persecution comes for our faith, when we begin to suffer affliction because we're children of God by faith in Christ, the danger is to drift away from those core things that keep us growing. And so Paul's reminding them, your ongoing growth is so important. You know how it is. You may be ministering to a brother or sister and difficulties come in their lives, and what happens? You don't see them at meeting suddenly. They get depressed. They don't come out. You call them up. They don't want to talk on the phone. You try to go over and see them. No, I'm too busy. I don't, I don't want you to come. You know, that's, that's that breach that's beginning to happen. The very thing that they need the most to give them strength is what they're turning away. They may not realize it. Usually they don't, right? Because when we get in that depressed mode, we're not thinking clearly. So that's why we need to be sensitive to help one another. So, so we jot down a card, write a note to them, and, and, and we pray for them, and then we continue to reach out and pursue them, right? Because that's what love does. Love doesn't give up. When the going gets hard, love doesn't give up. Love steps up. The world gives up. But we have a supernatural love at work within us, beloved. 
And we have responsibilities to the Lord to honor that and yield to it. One of the things that we're seeing, unfortunately, in, even in the assemblies, in many of our assemblies and a lot of the churches, is this disregard for women. And it's causing problems in marital relationships. It's causing problems in churches. And it's a general attitude of our culture. And I got in big trouble a few weeks ago. We were in 1 Corinthians 15 in Louisiana. And I said to them, Adam is responsible for bringing sin into the world, not Eve. Because I'd had a sister tell me a few weeks before, she said, well, you know, I guess I'm just like my mother Eve, and, and it's, it's our fault that sin's in the world. And I said, no, it's not your fault. It's man's fault, according to the Bible. Are you with me, men? I said, where was the man when she was confronted by the serpent, see? Who got the command not to eat, Adam or Eve? Adam did. We don't know that Eve ever got it. Adam was supposed to teach her. Did he teach her? We don't know that. But he certainly wasn't there to protect her. And there's a lot of that happening today. I told him, men, cowboy up, man up. That's how we would say it in Texas and Louisiana. We, cowboy up, be a man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, quit yourselves like men. Be brave. Be like a man. Guard your spouse. Don't just let her drift. And so some of the men came to me after they said, well, you're, the women really appreciate that message, but we had a lot of problem getting bossed around all week and we didn't like it. They said, and, and think of it, you a single brother, you, you're an expert on how to do this. I said, brethren, don't shoot the messenger. Your problem's not with me. Your problem's with him. I just gave you the word. That's what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, brothers, do we need to remind ourselves? Lay down your lives as Christ laid down his life for the church. And if you're doing that, you don't have to teach or command a woman to love you. Believe me, it'll be automatic. It will flow. So Paul's reminding them, we have a responsibility for one another. We're not just adrift by on our own. We have a responsibility for one another in the body of Christ. So he says, it's fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all. You notice, every should have been enough. But then he adds the word all too, just to make sure that it's all inclusive. Every one of you all abounds toward most of the people. No, toward each other, everyone. And that word, again, abound matches with the exceeding in, with regard to faith. So your faith is growing exceedingly and your love toward one another is flourishing. You know what that word abundance, we get our word abundance from the word abound. It's the idea of overflowing. Your love for one another is overflowing. I mean, Paul, you can imagine, he must be on a cloud by now as he's rejoicing in this new testimony, this new church that he's planted, maybe at the time this letter's going, maybe six months at the most has this new assembly been in existence. And the devil's already tried to squash it, and he's still trying to squash it. He's still trying to do that. He's still doing that today, beloved unparalleled, I, I was writing something to a friend, unparalleled things, even in preparing these messages and even getting here, things that have never happened in 10 years happened, even just trying to get here for these, the, the devil didn't want me to be here giving these, minute, these messages, I can tell you. So I just said, Lord, if you want them, you do it. 
You open the door. You overcome. And he can do that, right? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he said, is my arm too short? Have I suddenly gotten weak, Jeremiah? I'm not able to be there for you anymore. I'm not omniscient anymore. I'm not omnipresent anymore. What's happened? You've forgotten who I am, right? I'm omnipotent. Got all power. And he's your father and mine. And we sit back and whimper and worry and get anxious. And he's our father. <laughs> and we need to go to him. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience. Now he adds the word patience, which is linked to the word hope. That third word he had in the first letter, right? Patience of hope. And that word patience is hupomone, it's the idea of bearing up under a load. And the load's not taken away. It's still there, but you're given the strength to bear up, to continue, despite the load. Patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you continuously endure. That's what we've been called to do, beloved. And, and beginning now in verse 5, he, he's going to expand that. This, to me, is God's answer to the false health and wealth gospel that it happens to be the most popular gospel in America today. Paul would pronounce an anathema on a false gospel, wouldn't he, in Galatians 1? Would you? Would I? See, the health and wealth gospel says that God doesn't want you ever to have disease. He wants you to always be healthy. And he wants you to be wealthy. So you can give to the televangelist, right? Especially the one who's telling you to be healthy and wealthy. And they take verses out of context. I mean, I've, I've watched it. I've seen it done for years. No, oh, brethren. You know, what that, you know what that's rooted in? That's rooted in a preterist theology and a preterist and amillennial theology that's been teaching for years that the kingdom has already come. That there's no literal thousand-year reign. That the kingdom, the preterist theology, says that, that Christ began to reign in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. If this is the kingdom, <laughs> I don't know if I want it. But I know from the Bible this isn't the kingdom. The wolf's not lying down with the lamb. And don't let your child play in the cobra's den either. I would highly recommend you keep that child away from the cobra. We're not in the kingdom yet. But preterism, I'm told by some evangelists, is the fastest growing movement in this country, and it is in many assemblies. We had a problem with it over in Louisiana. It took us two years to find out what the brother believed because he wouldn't tell us. He just said he disagreed with the doctrinal statement. But he was slipping in every Lord's Supper. He'd get up and say, there's no more Jews. God's through with the Jews. And, and I was thankful that I could stay out of it and let the local brothers do it. My spirit was disturbed the first time I heard the brother get up. But, you know, we have to recognize our role and functions, right? I'm the outsider coming in. Let the local brethren take care of it. Took them a little while, but they did it. And they did it very thoroughly and very biblically. I'm proud of them. Paul would be proud of them. But you see what I'm saying? If we're in the kingdom, then we should be healthy and wealthy. Right? So you see how false theology leads to false living? And you see how it's so important to follow the scriptures? 2 Timothy 2.15 Come on, you Awana kids. How is it? A-W-A-N-A, -A -A, worker, approved, and not ashamed. Is that it? A worker, a workman, approved before God, and not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the truth, not ashamed to stand for it, see? So Paul begins in verse 5 through verse 10 to deal with the righteous judgment of God. 
Then he'll conclude in verses 11 and 12 with the responsibility and a prayer and their responsibility to continue with what their growth was manifesting, their testimony. But their testimony, and here is the whole element of rebuke in verses 5 through 10. Our testimony and why God is so concerned that our testimony stay pure and stay loyal to him is because our testimony as an assembly and as individuals is a rebuke to the world. The fact that you and I are going on living by faith instead of by sight. That we're going on to live a life of holiness by the Holy Spirit instead of imitating them in sexual immorality and, and all the drunkenness and, and all the other things that goes with that kind of lifestyle that they live. See? The Lord wants that and he's left us here for that to be a rebuke to them. That they might get awakened. That they might get saved. If they get awakened, turn to Christ, they will get saved. Just like we were. That's why he's left us here. That's why our testimony is so important to the Apostle Paul and to the Lord Jesus himself. So he says, this testimony, verses 3 and 4, the ongoing, growing exceedingly faith, the abounding love, and the enduring patience and faith and all the persecutions is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Whoa, now he's moving into the judgment seat. And God's judgment is righteous. That is, it's according to justice. And it's without any partiality. We don't judge like that. <laughs> In our bodies, we can't. In our glorified bodies, hopefully we'll be able to do that consistently. But in these bodies, we can't be perfectly impartial. We seek to be impartial. Because the scriptures tell us that. Elders are told they have to be impartial in the matter of discipline in 1 Timothy 5. And if they can't be impartial, they need to recuse themselves from whatever judgment they're dealing with. It's that important to God. It's manifest evidence of the righteous that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So if you're suffering for the kingdom then how can that be consistent with the health and wealth gospel? <laughs> Paul will say, remember how Romans 8, 17 goes? We'll reign, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Suffering now, reigning later. It's the same track that our Lord followed. Ought not the Christ to have suffered first and then entered his glory? He told the two on the road to Emmaus, right? He said, this is in the Old Testament. He rebuked them. You should have known this, he said. Where are you getting this preterist idea that, that you're, there's no suffering now? He said, no. No, suffering is part of the testimony now. Well, beloved, you ought to be breathing a sigh of relief. I am. <laughs> because you're probably suffering. I am. And that's part of the testimony. How we respond to our suffering is part of the testimony that's a rebuke to the world. What's the world's attitude towards suffering? Get rid of it. Avoid it. Run like the plague away from it, right? Take anything, this, 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 get, it, get anything, you know, whatever you do. You got to get booze, you got to go to the bar, you got to work all hours so you can put it out of your mind, whatever, become a workaholic, whatever it is. Don't suffer. Now, lest I be misinterpreted. Not that you all would ever do that. But lest I be misinterpreted, we're not masochists. You know, we don't look for ways to put ourselves in suffering, you know. That's what masochism would do. We're not that. It, it will come. If you're identified with Jesus Christ, beloved, it will come. The suffering will come. Just to be linked with him. Just to take time out of your schedule to consistently read the Bible involves a certain amount of suffering because you might rather be sleeping. And you need to Get out of bed. 
Open up those eyes. Start a program. Get some discipline going. By the Lord's help. And recognize, hey, I understand who I am. I'm a child of God through faith in Christ. I'm representing him here on earth. I'm left here to suffer for him. And allow him to use that suffering to mold me and train me, to prepare me for the kingdom of God. And that's the eternal life. This one's only temporary. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these momentary light afflictions, they're, they're nothing compared to the weight of glory that's coming. So keep your perspective, he says. Momentary light compared to eternal weight of glory. That's the perspective, Paul said. I have, and he says, you need to have. So they, they, they understand that it's the kingdom of God that they're being prepared for. That counted worthy is not meritorious worth. It's the idea of, of being prepared by God for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is such an enormous privilege. People have been looking toward the kingdom of God since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were hoping for it. Eve was hoping that Cain was the Messiah. You remember what she says when he's born? She, she, she was hoping Cain was him. She didn't want to wait all these generations. Cain wasn't him. So he says, since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And we see here, as he moves into the righteous judgment of God, a clear distinction between two groups of people. There are those who, in his righteous judgment, are going to be rewarded. That's his children, believers, like you and me. And there are those who are going to be, receive retribution for their rejection of his son and his gospel. That's unbelievers. There's only those two groups. Two roads, two destinies, right? Psalm 1, Matthew 7, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. Two roads, they lead to two destinations, clearly different. And here we see it again. He says, for those that are troubling you, God's going to trouble them. But beloved, don't expect to see that in this life. He may do it in this life. I've seen him do it in this life. But that isn't always the way it happens. He's mainly, Paul's looking at the big picture here, the righteous judgment of God, when Christ comes back to settle accounts. That's what he's going to talk about, the parousia, the return of our Lord. And so he says, and to give you who are troubled rest. Relief from your anxiety. Relief from your suffering. So ultimately, the relief isn't going to come while we're still here, is it? 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear. This mortal cannot inherit immortality. Our bodies must be changed. So they're going to be changed either through the experience of the rapture or those who have died will be raptured at the same time. But either way, the bodies need to be changed. And while we're in this body, we shall suffer. But we don't have to do it alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We have Jesus Christ interceding for us in heaven, and we have one another to help us. Don't try to be a lone ranger in your suffering. You won't make it. We're not built to make it like that. We're a community. We're responsible for one another. And he's going to elaborate on that judgment here in a minute, but he says in verse 7, to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels or his powerful angels. Now, what book in the Bible reveals that more than any other? The book of Revelation, doesn't it? 
Because after you get through the throne room scene in chapter 4 and 5, beginning in chapter 6, all the way to chapter 19, it, the, the angels are involved in almost every page of that judgment that's coming. And it's a process, isn't it? It's not a point-in-time judgment. It's a judgment that begins really with the rapture and then follows into the day of the Lord, which begins with the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist, and then moves on through the seven-year tribulation period and then into the kingdom. See, the day of the Lord begins in darkness and moves into light. It includes the seven-year tribulation period plus... The kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, according to the Bible. And that's, that's how we see it. That's our perspective. That helps us to understand, see? You can imagine just the fact of the rapture itself, what an impact that's going to have on the world. The first thing they're going to do is going to be worried about confiscating your property. And who's going to get it? There'll be a mad dash for your accounts and your houses and cars and all that. Because, beloved, we're not taking those with us. You got to leave those behind. So he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those. And notice there's a twofold description of the lost here who do not know God. They're not in a personal relationship with God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first step of obedience? with regard to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read it this morning. God commands all men everywhere to... Thank you. Repent. That's obeying the gospel. <laughs> These shall be punished with everlasting, that's eternal destruction. By the way, brethren, it, it may help you to see it. I mean, you may be familiar with it from before, but it's helpful to see in Revelation chapter 14, in verse 10 and 11, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is the unbeliever, which is poured out full strength into the cup of God's indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends how long? See, there's a popular theological viewpoint out there called annihilationism. I think even F.F. F. Bruce took that position, and he was a beloved brother, but he was wrong there. No, it's torment day and night, no rest day and night forever, eternal torment for the lost, everlasting destruction in verse 9. That's what that's talking about. When you realize that's what's ahead for the lost, if that doesn't cause your heart to feel compassion for them, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. Now, some brethren, some brethren have a particular burden from the Lord that they just understand the gravity of that, and they want to do everything they can to keep people out of hell. And, and thank the Lord for those brethren, and we need to be praying for them. The ones that are willing to sacrifice and send out and give out tracts and so forth and, and put their lives on the line for the gospel like that. Not everybody has the same calling. But we can all be praying for one another. There's a very big danger to doing that. And that's going to increase in the world we're living. And you understand that, don't you? This isn't a Christian country, just in case you didn't know that. If it ever was. So he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And they're going to be able to see, like the rich man in Luke 16. You notice the rich man still trying to command the poor beggar Lazarus to do stuff for him? And he's the one in the wrong place. But he still thinks he's going to lord it over. And then he's going to correct Abraham. Abraham's in the right place. He's in the wrong place. He said, no, Father Abraham, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you how the right view of theology here. The poor lost, you know, they're going to just stay lost in darkness forever. And so we need to have compassion. 
and we need to pray for them. If you have friends that you've witnessed to, or loved ones particularly in your family you've witnessed to and seen no change in, I've witnessed to my family members for 30 years and seen practically no change. That's disheartening, or it can be. And so that we come alongside and we, we help one another. We put our arm around shoulder and say, let me pray with you. Because we all, we all have a burden to bear. And it's not easy. It's part of the suffering prior to the kingdom. So, you know, beloved, put away the mask. You know, it's great. Let's just take that mask with a big smiley face that says, man, everything's going great. When you see each other in the hallway and in the foyer, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. When it's not going great and you're suffering. Let's be real. Let's be energized. Let's stop and pray with one another when somebody's suffering. Let's shed a tear. I was, I was telling some brethren not too long ago, I'm thankful I, I, I have shed tears for one particular sister I've been praying for for a long time. And I, and I thank the Lord I can still cry. I thank the Lord my heart's not so hard that I can just tune it out, tune it off, and forget. How about you? You cried for anybody lately? Cried that they're lost and that they're headed for eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord when he comes in that day. <laughs> He's going to expand on that day in chapter 2. Lord willing, at the Ducanuses, we'll go into that. And you don't have to throw away your King James Bible. I'll get into that. Because the day of Christ works. You don't have to go to get your New American Standard and follow the minority text, which I think is a corrupt text, I'm going to tell you. I think the Textus Receptus is the text of the Bible. Not KJO, I'm not King James only. I've got a new King James here. But the Textus Receptus, oh yes, Textus Receptus. Because you can't be both. You understand that? You can't hop back and forth from two manuscript traditions. I've heard some brethren want to do that. Say, well, I follow the King James text for most of it, but here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, I'm going to switch over to the New American Standard to the critical text. You can't do that. Their whole manuscript tradition. If you hop over there here, then you've got to take out the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 which are also not in the critical text, and half of Mark 16, which aren't in the critical text. Your bracket there will tell you that if you have a New American Standard. I'm not willing to do that. John 8, 1 through 11 sets up, it's probably the most important section in the whole book of John. It sets up the whole book, certainly sets up the light of the world discourse that follows. These are manuscript traditions that have come down through centuries. So you can't hop back and forth like that. But we'll get to that, Lord willing, Tuesday. But when he comes in that day to be glorified in who? You see why he says in verse 3, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren? <laughs> because when Christ comes in that day, he's going to be glorified in you, his saints. That's who you are if you're a child of God. And Christ wants to be glorified in you and me. Are you beginning to feel the privilege of what it is to be a child of God? And it's not just being a religious person or someone that attends a church. You're part of majesty. Aren't you? If the spirit of the living God is dwelling in you, does that not make you majestic? So he says, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. It's too bad the world, the lost of this world, they're not going to be admiring him. They're going to probably still be cursing him. They'll probably be cursing him the Lord Jesus, for all eternity. They may be cursing you, too. 
because you told them about him, and that made them more culpable. Because our testimony among you was believed. And then he moves into, I'll move through it quickly. Sorry to run over. The, the concluding prayer in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, because this is true, we also pray always for you. Well, he's already said that he's been praying for him. But he says, we always pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? The calling to be glorified in his saints. The calling to be preserved for his kingdom. The calling to serve with him in the kingdom and on into the eternal state. In glorified bodies. To rule and reign with him, which was Adam and Eve's original commission. In Genesis 1.26, God's going to bring it back to that. See, God hasn't failed. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten me. He hasn't forgotten Adam and Eve. Man was created to reign on the earth. I'm not interested in playing a harp and floating on a cloud, beloved. I, I'm just not interested in the atmosphere. I want to be, I'm a terrestrial being. I want to be on the earth. Psalm 115 says that the man was made for the earth. God in the heavens, man for the earth. But I want to be on a glorified earth, not this one. He takes us home tonight. It's okay with me. But if he doesn't, like Dave said very accurately, you've got a work to do. You've got a person to represent. You've got a calling to complete and fulfill. And if you're breathing, yeah, I think most of you are breathing still. If you're breathing, you haven't completed it yet. Right? So we want to be yielding. We want to be surrendering to what he wants us to do and be. To walk with him in majesty and to walk with Christ in this world is to walk with majesty. It's powerful. I mean, Jack Hayford's song, you know, majesty, worship is majesty. That, one of the powerful moments in my life, I'll never forget, we were at the garden tomb holding a communion service, holding the remembrance meeting at the garden tomb, you know, there in 